Welcome back to Match Volume. We're your hosts, Naive Alvarenga and Emma Dessa. This time of year is crazy. New Year's was yesterday, midterm exams are here, and it feels like we have a democratic debate every other week. I hear you, I hear you. I can't keep up either. Sometimes it helps to step out of your own life and dive into a really good story. Uh, Okay, I see where you're going. Keep going. (laughs) Well, lucky for you, this week we are featuring two guests who studied and write about stories. You're right. Our first guest is Henry Jenkins, a professor in communication and journalism and cinematic arts at USC. Jenkins talks about comic books and their importance to pop culture and a bit about his forthcoming book, Comics and Stuff. Hi, I'm Henry Jenkins. I'm a provost professor of communication, journalism, cinematic arts, and education here at the University of Southern California. And that's a mouthful. So the book I have coming out in fall of next year is called Comics and Stuff. It's about contemporary graphic novels. It starts from that premise that the status of comics themselves are shifting from disposable to enduring works. And that creates a special consciousness about the way we relate to material culture. What do we keep? What do we get rid of? I would love to know how you got into comic books as a child. Um, What was your favorite thing? What did you first pick up? So one, you know, once I could read a little better, uh, we moved to superhero comics. We moved to classic illustrated. I read a ton of that stuff, of which very little survives today. But I still have battered copies of some of the superhero stuff that I read as a kid and fairly pristine copies of the classic illustrated because my mother would preserve them next to the National Geographic's as kind of sacred artifacts in the family, whereas Superhero comics got read by tons of boys at the lake house on rainy days and have fallen into tattered pieces, but I still refuse to let go of those pieces. There's kind of an uprise in graphic novels as opposed to single-issue comic books. Um, Do you think that's made a change in terms of accessibility? No, absolutely. There's a totally different list of what's bought in bookstores and what's bought in comic shops. So the bookstores, it's full of graphic novels and by and large things that originate as graphic novels as opposed to things that originated as floppies and became published that way. So Scholastic has made a huge investment in graphic novels for young adults. And when I was in school, you had to smuggle your comics in the textbook. Now you can check them out at the school library. So that's a, that's a big shift, I think, in terms of what graphic novels have done. So in my book, Comics and Stuff, I begin with that transition. That is, what is what changes when you go from a disposable medium like the floppies to an enduring medium like graphic novels? How does that change the aspiration of both authors and readers and what themes they explore? And that's been a significant shift in the medium. How have you seen maybe authorship change as well? How have you seen comics as a tool for activism and social justice and advocating for representation. Uh, Specifically, the analogy to Superman took on a life of its own for a while. So if you think about Superman, we would say that there are not illegal aliens, there are undocumented people. But if we did accept that terminology, then surely Kal-El of the planet Krypton would be the poster child for illegal aliens, right? His parents sent him away from a troubled society in search for a better life in a new world someplace else. He crosses the border in the middle of the night and lands in Kansas cornfield. It's adopted by an Anglo couple that teaches him to hide who he is and where he's come from. And in a stealth mode, he still goes out and fights for truth, justice, and the American way of life 
while wearing his ethnic guard. He's wearing a super, the superhero costumes made from the blanket his mother wrapped him in on Krypton. So it's Kryptonian cloth. So all of that seems to echo the experience that many dreamers have of being undocumented in the United States. And it's no accident because the story of Superman was created by two Eastern European Jewish refugees in the late 1930s as the pogroms and Hitler's uh, genocide was beginning. So it was an immigration story all along. If you look at a women's march today, you will see iconography from all kinds of popular culture on the signs. And each protester seems to have their own mythology. And some of them will be Princess Leia. Some will be Handmaid's Tale. Some of them may be Harry Potter. But increasingly, it's Ms. Marvel. It's, you know, other superheroes are emerging there as icons of women's resistance to Trump and to patriarchy more generally. So there is a backlash from a very vocal section of the internet claiming that superheroes aren't political. I think that's obviously not true. Superheroes have always been political. There's that Captain America cover where he's punching out Hitler. Where do you think that sense of ownership, that sense of like white male ownership of superheroes and comic books came from? Well, I think it's an historical aberration at best. Uh, it was only when we started to remove them from popular domain that men became the dominant readership of comics. So most of those superhero characters were created at a point where women were seen as central to their readership. We do know that people of color have been buying comics and reading comics in great numbers all along. As for comics not being political, as you say, the minute a superhero punched Hitler in the jaw was the moment that superheroes became political. So I don't think there's a moment in the history of superheroes when they weren't political figures. Their shifting relationship to authority, whether they're autonomous, whether they're under governments, whether they work for the police, their definition of what they're fighting against, how their status within or outside of the nation state, all of those things are deeply political, and there's no way to tell those stories that isn't political. So to be these kind of toxic white males who are denying that reality, they clearly don't know their stuff. They don't know their history. They don't have a commitment to the franchise's evolution. You know, contrary to being experts, they really are profoundly ignorant in what they're trying to claim about the nature of, of the genre that they claim to be invested in. So I call them fake fanboys. Did you ever think that your love of comics and pop culture as a kid would bring you here? Well, my parents, I'm sure, didn't because they would always tell me <laughs> to go outside or study instead of reading comics. But there's a side of me that always wanted to do something with popular culture. And comics are a central part of the popular culture both I grew up with and that I still consume today. I subscribe to maybe 30 different comics at my local comic shop every month and try to keep on top of the graphic novels. I just am passionate about this medium. So I've always followed the path of most passionate, uh, go where, where my heart is. And right now, comic studies is one of my real passions. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. This was oh, my pleasure. That was Henry Jenkins with Victoria Alejandro. Our next guest is another professor who specializes in folklore. Isaiah Murtaugh discusses internet ghost stories and androids and cyborgs with Professor Todd Thompson. When I think of cyborgs, I think of like the Terminator, like 
a dude with a machine skeleton. And then I think sure, of sure, but but I, yeah. But I then again, of, like when I think cyborg, I also think of the fact that I, I kind of panic when I'm not, you know, within five feet of my phone, right? Right. I mean, well, and, and that's, that's what I'm talking. Uh, yeah. So I mean, there's this concept of cyborg that like we have in our heads of like the Terminator, like this dude with a machine skeleton, and there's this concept of folklore that's like Paul Bunyan, the Brothers Grimm, all these old stories. You know, if you go to the American Folklore Society conference, about one third of the papers are probably be on internet folklore. Uh, and so it's just, it's just a huge genre. So you can think, um, I don't know, things like Slender Man, for example, right? This, this is, we've had monsters, of course, but this is a sort of an internet native monster. Right. It says a lot about people's experiences with the online realm. It's about the online realm. So, um, yeah, I teach a, t- a class on ghost stories uh, for a freshman seminar, and we end up talking about ghosts online. And, and I make students um, sort of collect ghost stories. And increasingly, they've collected sort of, um, you know, cyborg ghost stories. So, you know, text messages from the beyond and um, this sort of thing, haunted servers. And uh, so the, the, the Internet has become haunted. It's become a place of, of graveyards of dead people. You know, what happens when you die? Well, what happens to your Facebook page? For the most part, it stays up. People tend to still be friends with you, right? right. I think it's considered a bit rude to defriend someone just because they died. So this creates a curious sort of afterlife uh, very quickly online. Where do these ghost stories come from? Are these stories of like people's actual experiences or these things that people make up to cope with things? How does a ghost story come to life? Well, there could be all of this. You have the personal experiences. You have the sort of the traditions of explanation. These things can all uh, work together and then people have their own individual experiences that are difficult to explain. Uh, and very often there's a traditional explanation. We have this like social media presence in this life after we die. But you talk in your book about um, Android ghosts. With this chapter, I wanted to think of folklore in a sort of futurist uh, perspective, which, uh, you know, and I think in other disciplines do futurist stuff, economics, and they do these stuff all <laughs> so the time. So why can I? Why, can, why can't we do that? And the idea is, is with especially with artificial intelligence, uh, but once you put it in a robot, especially like a person-looking robot, uh, we tend to personalize it a lot more. Uh, androids are, um, are 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 built to be socially significant to us. Ghost stories, uh, in general, reveal ethical lapses. Right? Why does something? You know, especially with a haunting ghost, right? A ghost that haunts. Why does a ghost haunt? Well, some wrong has been done somehow. Uh, and so if you look at ethics in terms of um, androids, uh, there is a huge gap, I would say, uh, in terms of how our ethical systems are prepared to deal with this. The technology is running off the conveyor belts, but right. the ethics, um, you know, is it okay to beat your android to death? Is it okay to buy sex androids and abuse them? Is it okay to... I don't know, have androids fight each other to the death. Right? There's, no, there's no guidelines for this. If we could treat them as machines, we might say, well, you know, you want to beat your car up? Okay, it's up to you, your car. Right. Uh, but if you, if you turn around and make it an android and someone's beating something that looks like a person and, uh, you know, smashing them into the ground and the, guy and, the, and, the other, and the android saying, please, Bob, help me, somebody help me, you know, that's going to affect us in a way that um, I think pushes those ethical questions right to the foreground. Last year, there was a guy in Texas who announced he was going to open a robot brothel, and everybody was really in a small, conservative Texas town. Everybody got really upset, and hey, there's got to be a law against that. But what would that law say exactly, right? That's, that's where the problem comes in. And so if we don't have any ethical systems in place, you know, we're trying to program androids to be ethical towards us, so don't we have to be ethical towards them? What I'm suggesting is that if we don't figure this out, we will be haunted by right. the ghost of artificial intelligence in the future. I was watching an episode of Community. You know the TV show? Have you heard of this TV show, Community? They had an anthropology class, and the professor said something about how 
oh, the way we know we're human is because we make tools. And I think that has been thoroughly debunked there. We've found plenty of animals that make tools. Um, one thing you mentioned in the first part of your book is um, that something that so far is distinguishing us from animals is the ability to tell stories. Yeah, as far as, far as we can tell, uh, we seem to be the only uh, animal to tell stories. And that, that's kind of a key point because I think it explains a lot of human culture. It explains our propensity for storytelling. We love stories. Right. So what happens when an android can tell stories? Increasingly, AI are our storytellers. Uh, Japanese AI just created a song to greet the, to greet the Pope on his recent visit to Japan. Uh, AI is increasingly being used to, uh, um, to, to fake college student papers and, and to uh, attempt to write. Uh, and, and it's sort of a bit clunky, but it's getting better very, very quickly. We used to worry about kids being raised by TV, and now researchers are a little worried about kids being raised by Alexa. Oh, yeah. You know, Alexa, tell me a bedtime story. Alexa, tell me a ghost story. Uh, and um, it's fascinating. They don't, you know, when you ask Alexa to tell a story, they don't just read, you know, find something that was printed and read it unless you ask them for that. In general, they, they do what sort of Google Translate does, which is aggregate and create a composite, uh, which is interesting because that's how folklore works, right? That's how, that's how we tell stories. So yeah, there's going to be a lot of new stories. There's going to be, I think, new ghosts. There's going to be uh, all these new ways that we're trying to figure out and, and, and muck through what's happening to us. We're radically transforming in one generation or less. Does it worry you at all? Uh, well, the thing that worries me most, I think, is the Anthropocene, is the sixth grade extinction. We're, we're sort of diving off a sustainable cliff here. Uh, that worries me. Um, and in some ways, the idea that we're investing so much time and effort into the cyborg quality and into building androids uh, probably doesn't really help. You know, this idea of can we escape our biological sort of reality? No, I don't think we can, right? If the trees disappear off the planet Earth, we're not going to breathe for very long. It doesn't matter right? how many androids we it doesn't, have. It doesn't matter how many androids or avatars you're going to have out there if you can't breathe. Um, and, uh, you know, so again, it's about ontology. Who am I? I tend to think of trees as like my other lungs, right? I, I breathe out, they breathe in. There's a back and forth. I, I, wouldn't, I couldn't live without them. And they're, they're the other half of my lungs. So, you know, are they not a part of me? The other sort of escapist fantasy that is huge, I think, is this idea of, of aliens that we're going to, like, or either that we're going to travel to a different planet and colonize the other planet. I really don't think that's feasible. Uh, or that, you know, we're not really from here because we're part alien. Uh, so this belief in, in aliens, I think, is also sort of a, a running away from our, some might say, I would say, our ethical responsibilities as, as, a, as an earthling. Uh, rather, rather than dealing with the planet Earth, we're always looking, oh, what about somewhere else? What about somewhere else? We spend far more on exploring Mars than we do in the bottom of the ocean. I think that's ridiculous. That was Professor Talk Thompson. His book, The Truth of Myth, World Mythologies, and Theory in Everyday Life, releases in March. This episode was produced by Emma Dessau and Naib Alvarenga, and a special thanks to Victoria Alejandro and Isaiah Murtaugh for this week's interviews. If you like this episode, make sure to subscribe and come back for another impactful interview. Thanks for listening.